offerings and sacrifice. Um, in the uh, in the Bible, uh, there are plenty of offerings, especially in the book of Leviticus, <clears throat> that I had found. The Old Testament regulations for offerings and sacrifices are renowned for their many and complicated details, and the overall sacrificial system is quite foreign to our Western culture. Yet, one could hardly overestimate the significance of the Old Testament sacrificial system for the theology of the Bible. Even before the revelation to Moses at Sinai, offerings and sacrifices were a key part of the practice of relationship with God from Cain and Abel to Noah to the patriarchs to Jethro, the priest of Midian, to the ratification of the Mosaic covenant by sacrifice before the tabernacle was built. They remained central to the ritual systems of the tabernacle and the first and second temples, and therefore to the Old Testament theology of God's presence and his relationship to ancient Israel as his kingdom of priests when <clears throat> Uh, as his kingdom of priests, when God came, when God became present with us by means of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices continued to yield much in terms of Jesus as our sacrifice, Jesus as our high priest, and our Christian commitment and ministry as a sacrifice to God of ourselves and our kingdom labors. <clears throat> the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew expression to present an offering is a combination of the verb to present, bring near, or offer, and its cognate noun, offering. <clears throat> the Hebrew word normally translated sacrifice does not occur in Leviticus until uh, chapter 1, verse 3, until... Chapter 3, verse 1, in the introduction to the peace offering section. The term for offering continues to be used there in verses 1, 2, 6, 7, 8, 12, and 14. Thus, one can say that the peace offering was a particular kind of offering that was also a sacrifice. It involved an animal that was killed and then eaten as a part of a communal meal. In my sermon, the word offering will be used as a comprehensive term, including both grain and animal offerings. Sacrifice will refer only to animal offerings. Uh, the first part is offerings and sacrifices. Outside the sanctuary, according to the earthen altar law in Exodus 20, verses 24 through 26, and the many references to such altars in the early history of Israel as a nation in the land of Canaan, the Lord clearly indicated that the Israelites perpetuate the practice of building solitary altars and worshiping at them even after the tabernacle altar existed. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus uh, chapter 20 and verses 24 and 26. And there we read, 
24 and 26. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon by burnt offerings, and thy peace offering, thy sheep and thine oxen, in all places where I record my name, and I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. <clears throat> now I had read um, in verse 25 where it says, Thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thy lift thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. That is because... God wants it to be completely sacred. Whenever man puts his hands to anything, he pollutes it. So anyway, <clears throat> that is why it is versed that way. Um, and then uh, we read that, um, let's see, tabernacle altar. These altars and the practice of worship at them were relatively simple compared to that called for in the sanctuary. Uh, i.e. the tabernacle and later the temple. The sanctuary included a corresponding burnt offering altar, but it was also an actual residence of God. The sanctuary system of offerings and sacrifices included the major features of previously existing external system, i.e. the burnt, grain, drink, and peace offerings at the solitary altars, but the solitary altar system did not include sin and guilt offerings. Even as early as Genesis 4, 3 through 5, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought one from his flock. I'm sure all of you are familiar with uh, this story. The Hebrew term for both offerings in this context is minha, which can either be a general term for offering, gift, present, or tribute, or a specialized term from grain offering. Some have argued that Cain's offering was rejected precisely because, not being an animal offering, it did not include blood atonement. A better explanation is that the lack of descriptive terms such as first fruits for Cain's offering is conspicuous for its absence in light of the description of Abel's offering as fat portions and firstborn. Uh, in Genesis 4, 3b through 4a, Cain's response only made matters progressively worse and may indicate that there was a pre-existing problem in Cain's relationship with both God and Abel. The first reference to burnt offerings is <clears throat> in Genesis 8:20, where it says, <clears throat> where it said that, well, let me go to it because I don't think this is in the um, KJV, so page 11, page 11, and it says 8.20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. <clears throat> And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The word for sacrifice, zebah, first occurs in Genesis 31.54 in the covenant-making ceremony. 
between Jacob and Laban. He, Jacob, that is, offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. In Genesis 46.1, these two terms occur together. Oh, okay, that was uh, referring to the relatives uh, being invited to the meal. These two terms occurred together in Exodus 10.25, where Moses explained to Pharaoh, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. <clears throat> and in the KJV, that is said as... Exodus 10, 25, and Moses said, thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. The first occurrence of the term peace offering is in Exodus 20, 24, where the Lord refers to it along with burnt offerings as a part of the altar law. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice, it on, <clears throat> sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle, wherever I cause my name to be honored. I will come to you and bless you. Finally, all three terms appear together in Exodus 24, verses 4 through 5, in the ritual for the ratification of the covenant at Mount Sinai. He, that is Moses, got up early the next morning and built an <clears throat> earthen altar at the foot of the mountain. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Here the NIV translates the uh, apposition sacrifices fellowship offerings simply as fellowship offerings, both terms are there in Hebrew. Uh, after the tabernacle had been established, the nation continued to offer burnt grain, drink, and peace offerings on solitary earthen altars, as well as on the altar in the tabernacle. In fact, the Lord himself commanded that they build such an altar at Shechem, i.e. Mount Ebal, and offer burnt offerings offer burnt and peace offerings there as a part of the initial covenant ceremony in the land. That is read in Deuteronomy 27, verses 5 through 7. At least part of the purpose of this ceremony appears to have been to lay claim to the land that the Lord had promised Abram long before when he first entered into the land and built an altar in the same general location near Shechem. In some cases, such altars and burnt and or peace offerings presented on them were a means of calling on the name of the Lord in specific situations. Offerings and sacrifices, excuse me, <coughs> sorry about that. Offerings and sacrifices inside the sanctuary from a literary point of view, the rules for burnt, grain, and peace offerings in Leviticus 1 through 3 is a unified whole. The repetition of introductory formula and address to sons of Israel in Leviticus 4, 1 through 2, as Jason read earlier, separates the rules for sin and guilt offerings in Leviticus 4, 1 through 6 and verse 7 from those in Leviticus 1 through 3. 
This seems to be a literary reflection of the historical reality that before and even after the construction of the tabernacle, the burnt offerings and peace offerings, or some combination of the two, uh, and the grain offerings that often came with them, uh, constituted a system of offerings used by the faithful at solitary Yahwistic altars outside the tabernacle. Uh, the burnt offering. Am I still on the all right page? Exodus 10 through 23. Um, <clears throat> the burnt offerings uh, could be from cattle, the sheep and goats, or the birds. Uh, as we read in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Leviticus 1, 3 verses. Chapter 1, 3 through 9, silly. In his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. And he shall kill a bullock before the Lord and the priest, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut, into, cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron, of the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall be washed in water, <coughs> shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice with offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Amid the uh, diversity of different kinds of animal offerings and the many distinctive ways they were offered to the Lord, it appears that there was one con constant in the presentation of sacrificial animals, the laying of <clears throat> the laying on of the hand or plural hands if one or more persons were involved, the purpose of this act was to identify the offerer with his or her offering and possible possibly also to designate or consecrate the offering for the purposes of the offering. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make an atonement for him. <clears throat> In Leviticus 1.4, the laying on of the hand did not transfer anything to the offering animal, least of all sin. Only holy things could have contact with the altar. In the scapegoat ritual, the high priest was to lay both hands on the animal and confess the sins of the whole congregation in order to expressly transfer the sins to the goat. But in the case the <clears throat> but in that case the animal was not offered upon the altar but instead was sent far away from the altar as possible. <clears throat> we read this in Leviticus 16 verses uh, 21 through 22. 
where the Bible says, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now the offer normally slaughtered <coughs> the offerer normally slaughtered the animal, but the priest placed its various parts on the altar fire to burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The basic principle behind the burnt offering was that the whole animal was offered on the altar. That is, with the exception of the hide, the larger animals that had been skinned as a part of the slaughtering process and the crop of the birds with its contents. It was the burning of the offering that made it a pleasing aroma to the Lord, which in turn caused it to arouse a certain kind of response from the Lord. According to Genesis 8:20 through 22, it was the pleasing aroma of the burning meat that led the Lord to promise that he would never again destroy the earth and mankind as he had done in the flood. The burnt offering was a way of calling on the Lord to pay attention to the needs, requests, and entreaties of his worshipers, either independently or in association with the peace offering. It was also a means of expressing worshipful worshipful responses to the Lord, and along with its accompanying grain offerings was the staple of the daily, weekly, monthly, and annual festival cycle in the sanctuary. <clears throat> now the grain and drink offering Uh, the Hebrew term for grain offering is minha, which as noted above can also mean generally gift, present, or tribute. In Leviticus and other sanctuary contexts, it always means grain offering. The grain offering pericope in Leviticus 2 stands between the burnt and peace offering chapters, Leviticus 1 and 3 respectively. <clears throat> this is as it should be since the grain offering was a regular part of a burnt or peace offering along with prescribed libation. Like grain... <clears throat> Like the grain offering, the practice of offering drink offerings or libations predates the tabernacle system and continued at other altars even after the tabernacle and the temple were available. <clears throat> However, within the sanctuary system, they constituted a significant part of the ritual procedures even on a regular daily basis. It was specifically legislated that libations along with grain offerings should normally accompany any burnt or peace offering. In Numbers 15, 1 through 5, Numbers 15, 1 through 5, let me write that page down, that's okay. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye become in, 
when ye be come into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you, and will make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, in performing a vow or in a free will offering or in your solemn feast to make a sweet savor unto the Lord of the herd or of the flock. Then shall he that offereth, in verse 4, his offering unto the Lord, bring a meat offering of a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of an hen of oil, and the fourth part of an hen of wine for a drink offering shalt thou prepare with the burnt offering or sacrifice for one lamb." The priest was, an, <clears throat> was to offer a part of the grain offering on the burnt offering altar as a memorial portion to the Lord along with the salt of the covenant. If the grain was offered raw, then the incense was to be added to the memorial portion to lend it an especially pleasing aroma as it burned on the altar. <clears throat> According to the law of the test of adultery in Numbers 5, 11 through 31, the purpose of the memorial portion seems to have been to call to mind the <clears throat> reason for the offering in the presence of the Lord. The term itself is directly related to the Hebrew verb meaning to remember, and in this passage, the whole of the grain offering was viewed as literally an offering of memorial causing remembrance of iniquity. The grain offering of jealousy did not include oil or frankincense because it would call to mind the accusation of iniquity. The grain offering used as a sin offering was similar. Since the memorial portion was burned on the altar, the whole of the grain offering was to be unleavened with no honey added, and the priests were to consume the remainder as unleavened cakes. The prohibition against leaven and honey is probably best explained by their association with decay through fermentation. The bread of presence placed on the table before the Lord in the holy place every Sabbath was also conceived of as a grain offering. Leviticus 2.13 refers to the importance of adding the salt of the covenant of your God to every grain offering. This expression occurs only in two other places in the Old Testament, once in reference to the covenant commitment of the Lord to provide for the Aaronic, <coughs> Aaronic priests, in Numbers 18, verse 19, and once in reference to the covenant commitment to the dynasty of David and his descendants, Second Chronicles 13, verse 5. The preserving character of salt suggests the enduring nature of the covenant bond between the Lord and his people. The commitment was permanent. Next, um, we have the peace or fellowship offering. The peace offering emphasizes the fact that the people of ancient Israel had the opportunity for close communion with the Lord. They could eat the flesh of an animal that had been presented, identified, and consecrated as an offering to the Lord. In Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 21, I'm going to go back. Six, 
Okay, Leviticus 7, 11 through 21. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of peace offerings. And of it he shall offer one out of the whole oblation for an heave offering unto the Lord, and it shall be the priest that sprinkleth the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offereth his sacrifice, and on the morrow also the remainder of it shall be eaten. But the remainder in verse 17 of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt with fire. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering be eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted. Neither shall it be imputed unto him that offereth it. It shall be an abomination, and the soul that eateth of it shall bear his iniquity. And the flesh that toucheth any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burnt with fire, and as for the flesh, all that can be clean shall eat thereof. But the soul that eateth of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings that pertain unto the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the soul that shall toucheth any unclean thing as the uncleanness of man or any unclean beast or any abominable unclean thing and eat of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which pertain unto the Lord, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. The blood manipulation for a peace offering was normally the same as that for a burnt offering. However, only the fat parts of the carcass were offered on the altar to be burned as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Thus, the fat parts of the carcass became like the whole carcass of the burnt offering and accomplished the same purpose. It is likely that the fat was not to be eaten because it was viewed as a delicacy. For example, according to Deuteronomy 32, verses 13 through 14, the Lord fed the people the best of the land, including, among other things, the fat of lambs, rams, goats, and even wheat, as well as the blood of grapes. The fat of the kidneys of the wheat is clearly a play on words for the best of the wheat. Leviticus 7, 11 through 34 is important to a fuller understanding of the peace offering aside from prohibition against eating or <clears throat> fat in verses 20 through to 22 through 27. There are two major sections here. The first deals with the various kinds of worship rationale associated with the peace offering, thanksgiving, votive, or free will, and rules for eating the meat that went to the offerers, verses 11 through 21. The second section is about the portions that went 
to the priest from every peace offering. The breast of the wave offering <clears throat> and the right thigh of the contribution to the particular priest who officiated at the offering of the particular peace offering. The later derives from the Hebrew verb to raise up and for that reason is called a heave offering. In some English versions, uh, English to heave meaning lift or raise up. However, in ritual context, this verb actually means to remove something in order to present it to the Lord, i.e. to set it aside as a special contribution. These were the standard <clears throat> pre-bend for the priest, and they could be eaten in any clean place. Therefore, not only the priests themselves, but also all who lived in their households and were clean could eat of these portions of the peace offerings, but no common persons of a non-priestly household. For a common person to eat of these portions would be to violate the sancta, the holy things of the Lord. <clears throat> Now, the sin or purification offering, is that what's up next? Oh, that's coming up next. Uh, the sin offering was a primary blood atonement offering in the sanctuary system of offerings through which worshipers could receive forgiveness for their sin and deal with the degree to which they might have contaminated the tabernacle. Very detailed rules of blood manipulation were the focal point of this ritual procedure. Leviticus 4, 1 through 2a sets the sin offering pericope off from Leviticus 1 through 3. Unlike the previous sections, virtually every paragraph in Leviticus 4, 1 through 5 and 13 either begins or ends with a statement of sin committed and its associated guilt. Leviticus 4.2 states, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. Leviticus 4.3 then begins <clears throat> the first of the four major divisions, the sin offering of the priest, the whole congregation, the leader, and the common person. Sin offerings were used on several unique occasions. The inauguration of altar worship, wait a second, okay, sin offerings were used on several unique occasions, see, e.g., the consecration of the priests in Exodus 29.14, Exodus 29.36, Leviticus 8.2, and Leviticus 8.14, the inaltar the inauguration of altar worship in Leviticus 9, 2 through 7, Leviticus 9, 8 through 11, and Leviticus 9, 15 through 17. They were also called for on regular occasions monthly in Numbers 28, verse 15. At various annual festivals and especially on the annual day of atonement. Other specifics specific situations that occurred throughout the year would also require a sin offering, i.e. cleansing of the woman after childbirth, <clears throat> as read in Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. The cleansing of irregular unclean discharges, in our age the term sin offering could be construed to mean that this offering focused on the problem of moral and social sin. In the Old Testament, 
Such sins were included as part of the purpose for sin offerings, but the sin offering could also be brought for physical impurities that had nothing to do with moral failure. The focal point of the sin offering ritual was blood manipulation, and the way it was done was different when it was brought for the priest and the whole congregation as opposed to the leader and the common people. For the priests and the whole congregation, the priest sprinkled the blood with his finger seven times in front of the veil of the sanctuary, <clears throat> put some of the blood on the horns of the incense altar inside the holy place, and simply poured out the remainder of the blood at the base of the burnt offering altar near the gate of the tabernacle complex. In other words, the blood penetrated the tabernacle complex as far as the contamination did i.e. the priest could enter the holy place and the congregation included the priest. The blood of the leader and the common Israelite was applied only to the horns of the burnt offering altar, which was the boundary of penetration for the non-priestly Israelite to the tabern into the tabernacle. The principle is that the blood went as far as the particular por person or collective group of persons could go and therefore decontaminated the tabernacle to that point. Leviticus 16:29 through 34 is a summary of the intended effect of the three sin offerings on the day of atonement. The scapegoat sin offering cleansed the people from their sins and the slaughtered sin offerings for the priests and the people cleansed the tabernacle from the impurity of their sins. Some scholars have argued that the cultic re regulations dealt with only cultic infringements and that the cultic system and the larger everyday community life of the nation were disconnected. However, the scapegoat ritual suggests that this was not the case. On the contrary, the Day of Atonement cleansed both the cultic impurities and the various kinds of iniquities of the people that could defile the tabernacle. The tabernacle holy holiness and purity emphasized in Leviticus 1 through 16 and the national holiness and purity which is the primary concern of Leviticus were viewed in close relationship to other to each other so close that both were dealt with on the day of atonement the guilt or reparation offering the purpose of the guilt offering was to make atonement for the decoration desecration of sancta, that is, the mishandling of holy or sacred things by treating them as if they were common rather than holy. For example, according to Leviticus 20 through 10 through 22 verses 10 through 16, the holy food gifts were to be eaten by the priests and those in their household, not the common people. To do so would be to profane the holy gifts, <coughs> to profane the holy gifts. However, if a common person ate holy meat mistakenly, then he had to give the same amount back to the priest plus one-fifth as a reparation for what he had done. The passage is an instructive parallel to the major guilt offering paracope, i.e. Leviticus 5, 14 through 6, 7. The guilt offering law begins as follows. When a person commits a violation and sins unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's 
holy things, the word unintentionally is the same one used in reference to the sin offering. It, offer, it refers to straying or erring from the commands of the Lord. In this case, specifically the commands about the Lord's holy things, i.e. things dedicated to the Lord for the tabernacle or the priesthood. The basic idea behind the expression commits a violation is that the person has acted unfaithfully against God by violating the boundary between the common and the holy. In this context, therefore, it means to commit a sacrilege. However, the guilt offering was also brought in cases of violations against the property of other people, not only the Lord's sancta. Therefore, whether the property belonged to the Lord or to other people, guilt, a guilt offering was presented to the Lord to make atonement, and the violated property was restored plus one-fifth to the one whose property had been violated. Therefore, some scholars refer to this as reparation offering. The violator not only brought the offering to the Lord, but also made reparation for the property he had violated. In both cases, the final result was the re final result for the one who committed the violation was that it would be forgiven him. Once the reparation had been made, it was possible for the offender to make atonement and receive forgiveness from the Lord. The violation in Leviticus 5.15 was done in error and known by the violator. The violation in verses 17 through 18 was also done in error, but it was not known by the violator. The assumption is that he might come to know his error either through remembering after the fact or being informed by another person that, for example, the meat he had eaten was from the holy portion that belonged to a priest and his family. Even though it was done in ignorance, if he indeed did come to know about it, he was still responsible for bringing a guilt offering to make atonement and attain forgiveness. <clears throat> okay, now the next part, sacrifice. Um, in, I think I have, yeah, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 13, uh, speaks about Abraham, as I'm sure you are all familiar. Um, Genesis 22... There we go, 1 through 13. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I, am, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here. <clears throat> With the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they both went 
of them together. Or they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and he took his knife took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> now the noun thusia, uh, sacrifice or offering, act of offering, occurs 29 times referring, for example, to specific Old Testament passages. Fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial regulations or festival celebrations, sacrifice, gift, act of offering, or grain offering, <clears throat> also refers to Christ's presentation of himself to God as an offering. Hebrews 10.10 10 and Hebrews 10.14 um, we can read these things. Jesus and the Old Testament, excuse me. <coughs> Jesus Christ and the Old Testament sacrificial system. During his incarnation, Jesus explicitly honored the Mosaic sacrificial system in Ma <coughs> Matthew 8, verse 4, in which we read... Verse 4. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. During his... <clears throat> oh, I already read that part. He lived as a Jew and encouraged others to also keep every smallest letter and least stroke of a pen. However, he was also in continuity with the Old Testament prophetic critique of the cult. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus suggested that the relationship with one's brother needed to be resolved before presenting offerings in the temple, uh, which we read in Matthew 5, <clears throat> verses 23 and 24, where it says... Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. <clears throat> First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. 
he also expressed frustration with the loopholes in the present priestly system whereby one could violate other Old Testament laws, uh, uh, the requirement to honor one's parents by taking care of them, by substituting the cultic piety of making offerings to the Lord, the well-known Corbin passage. Another dimension of the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament sacrificial system is his own personal identification with different aspects of the system. There are two aspects of this, Jesus as our high priest and Jesus as the sacrificial victim offered to God on the altar. It is important to remember that the New Testament offers a metaphorical application of the categories of the Old Testament system of offerings and sacrifices to Jesus in order to explain and illustrate the various ways in which his death on the cross was beneficial to us. Just lost my spot. Jesus was not literally slaughtered at the burnt offering altar. His blood was not applied there, and his body was not burned there. Nevertheless, the different kinds of offerings and sacrifices serve as metaphors to illustrate the various purposes and complete efficacy of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, Jesus as our Passover sacrifice. There are many possible references to Jesus as a Passover sacrifice in the New Testament. However, the most certain of them all is the exhortation to purity in 1 Corinthians 5.7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The context Paul uses this to rebuke the Corinthians for not removing an evil man from their church fellowship. The Passover sacrifice was associated with the removal of leaven from every Jewish household, as we see in Exodus 12, verses 15 through 20. Verses 15 through 20. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away the leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever." In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. Now, therefore, the leaven image could be used to refer to the polluting effect of one's evil person in the midst of the congregation. 
Since Christ has already been sacrificed, it was certainly time now to get rid of the leaven. <clears throat> Jesus as our suffering servant, guilt offering. When John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the word in John 1 verse 29, it is not certain whether he is referring to Jesus as the Passover lamb or as the suffering servant of the Lord mentioned in Isaiah 53, 7b. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers <clears throat> is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. The Passover lamb option has been favored by some, but the general consensus is that it refers to Isaiah 53, 7. Now, Jesus, as our new covenant ratification peace offering, according to Lutherans 22, 1 through 23, the last supper of Jesus was a Passover meal. Toward the end of that meal, Jesus created a new ritual on the foundation of the Passover ritual. The new ritual is the basis of the ordinance that we now have come to call communion, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, or as we call it here, the Lord's Supper. As is well known, it includes Jesus' words over the bread in Luke twenty-two nineteen. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the cup in Luke twenty-two twenty, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Both elements were part of the underlying Passover ritual, but Jesus referred to the bread as his own body and the cup as his own blood. Jesus referred to the cup as the new covenant in my blood, the similarity to Moses' statement in Exodus 24, 8, that this is the blood of the covenant, makes it inconceivable that the apostles would have failed to connect Jesus' words with the covenant ratification ritual back in Exodus 24. In this case, however, the blood was for the ratification of the new covenant, which, of course, recalls Jeremiah 31, verses, 30, verses 31 through 37. And Jesus, as our <clears throat> sin offering, the Old Testament word for sin offering can also mean sin. According to the NIV translation of Romans 8.3, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, but, mar but marginal option is in likeness of sinful man for sin, which reflects the fact that the Greek text has only the word sin. The translation problem appears again in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The important question is, did Christ become sin or did he become a sin offering for us? From the Old Testament uh, cultic perspective, the translation sin offering might make more sense in these pas passages. In, it is the sin offering rationale that is the foundation of atonement, redemption, forgiveness, and purification terminology and concepts in the New Testament. For example, according to Romans, we are justified before God through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
uh, presented in him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. It will re be recalled that the offering with which the atonement was most associated was the sin offering. Moreover, the sin offering blood atonement was foundational to Old Testament forgiveness. <clears throat> now, rounding this up in... Um, in, the in the New Testament, the connection between redemption or atonement and forgiveness of sins is also explicit. For example, it is in its context to reference to Jesus as atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, as we read in 1 John verse 2. <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 2, excuse me, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is a continuation of the argument, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and pure, purify us from all unrighteousness. First John, <clears throat> verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sacrifice of Jesus and the whole Old Testament sacrificial system opens with a summary of the Old Testament sanctuary system, beginning with a description of the sanctuary itself and ending with the distinction between sacrifices that were offered throughout the year versus the Day of Atonement. The, back, <clears throat> the background is the quotation of the New Covenant passage from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 in Hebrews 8, to which the writer will return <clears throat> in Hebrews 10, 16 through 17. And that... I have gone 10 minutes over. So anyway, <clears throat> that is the some of the differences between offerings and uh, sacrifice that we can find in our Bible. Uh, I appreciate your <clears throat> attentiveness for my uh, sermon this evening. Sorry I went 10 minutes over. I guess it kind of a makeup for all the times I was short. Uh, but anyway, um, I appreciate your attentiveness. And um, thank you once again uh, for your um, praises of my sermons uh, that I have done in the past. <clears throat> thank you very much. And if, uh, let's see, Jason, would you lead us in our closing prayer, please? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Prepare for it, thank you for uh, messages that we hear from Wayne and Dane and Pastor. Uh, Be with all of us as we go through our house, keep us safe, bring us back to this point in time. And I just continue to be praying for myself, uh, for Brian. May you put your hand upon me, and I pray that you be with all those that used to come here and they don't come anymore. Pray that this church grows. Save small sinners out here in the church land. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Okay, now, good evening.
interested because of the... Are we having a here or a back? We can have it right here. Oh, in the back? No, the ladies want to talk. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I got the truck. Really? It does in here sometimes. All righty then. I must have. Um, my Bible.